Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Mark Robert Rank, who's the author of The Poverty Paradox, Understanding Economic Hardship Amid American Prosperity from Oxford University Press. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Uh, so for those who are listening who may not have heard or remember our interview back from March of 2021 when we talked about uh, your book, Poorly Understood, um, if you would tell us just a little bit about yourself and what brought you to write this new book. Yeah, so actually this book is kind of a, a follow-up to the Poorly Understood book. So that book was kind of laying out all the, as we talked about a couple of years ago, it was laying out all the different myths and stereotypes surrounding poverty. And this book is really about um, how we should be thinking about poverty. So I've had a long um, kind of history in terms of my work of of really focusing on issues of poverty and issues of inequality in the United States. Um, I'm currently a professor here at, at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, yeah, and as I said, you know, I've been doing work for a long uh, period of time. And and actually, the way that the book starts out is by saying this book has been a long time in coming, because it's really kind of pulling together a lot of my thoughts over the years. So I wonder if it might not be useful for us to start just by by doing some really basic defining of terms, right? So what are when people talk about poverty as you walk us through in the book uh that can mean all sorts of different things to different people and can be measured in all kinds of different ways so for folks who may not be as immersed in this as you and i are um how should we be thinking about what poverty is and how we identify it yeah so you're you're exactly right there are a lot of different ways to kind of think about both defining poverty and measuring poverty I mean, the thing that sort of underlies all of the different um, definitions and measures is it's it's folks that are really struggling in terms of not having enough income, not having enough resources to lead a decent life. Now, the question is, okay, well, what is that level? Um, how do how do we actually measure that? And sort of the official measure of poverty that the U.S. Census Bureau uses is to basically draw a line uh, in terms of household income and to say. If you fall below that line, we're going to count you as in poverty. If you fall above that line, 
we're going to count you as not being in poverty. And so for last year, for a family of three, that poverty line was around, oh, $22,000. So for a household of three that made less than that, um, they would be counted as in poverty. Um, there are other measures that we that I talk about in the book. Um, uh, there's uh, the idea of a relative measure of poverty, which is to say, um, you know, folks, for example, that fall below half of the median income in a country could be counted as in poverty. It's kind of a different way of thinking about it. But again, all of these measures are really getting at the, the idea that, you know, we're talking about folks, you know, who are really struggling um, to get by, who just don't have enough income uh, to survive on. So that, that's kind of the overall idea that I think people should just keep in mind. So why don't we turn our attention to talking about general, the, the, again, it's, it's different ways to measure and, and define poverty, also different ways that folks have thought about causes of poverty. So why don't you walk us through some of the more common kinds of explanations, those that we've experienced historically and those that, that we can see still at work in the present, and then we'll turn our attention to how you would like us to, to be thinking about causes of poverty. So what are what are different ways that people have thought about what what where poverty comes from, why people are poor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a really good question. So, um, you know, the way that I divide it in in, uh, in one of the early chapters in the book is um, to divide those explanations into um, individual based explanations. Um, cultural-based explanations and structural-based explanations. So individual-based explanations are by far the most common view in the United States. And the idea there is that there's some kind of individual failing um, that is the, the result that results in poverty. And so this would be the idea that, well, people just aren't working hard enough or they're not motivated hard uh, enough or they've made bad decisions in their lives or they haven't gathered enough skills and education to compete in the labor market. Um, these are all kind of individually based explanations. And as I said, if, if we were to ask sort of folks out on the street, you know, why do you think poverty exists? This would be the most common kind of explanation that that, that people would give. Um, sort of a, a another level is the cultural level explanations, which here we, the, the focus is really on there's something about kind of the, the culture and the environment in which people are living that tends to perpetuate poverty. And the, and the most common cultural explanation is what's known as the culture of poverty. And that's been around for a long period of time. And it's, a, and it's really been applied to groups that are in poverty for long periods of time in really economically depressed areas like Appalachia or like inner city, uh, inner city areas in the United States. And there the idea is that, you know, if, you've, if you're in an environment in which poverty is endemic, you, um, you develop adaptations to that environment to help you get by, but um, those adaptations may hurt you in terms of getting out of poverty in the long run. So things like being much more present time oriented. So for example, not, you know, I can't worry about the future. I got to worry about today. Well, that makes perfect sense, but it also may hurt people in terms of eventually getting out of poverty. So that's a, a second level of, of explanations that have been around for a long time. And then the, the third level is um, what we might call the, the structural explanations. And here the idea is that rather than a failure at the individual level, 
there's a failure at the structural level. And, um, and generally what people focus on is either a failure in the economy, in the economic structure, or in the political structure of the United States. So in terms of the economic structure, the idea would be, um, you know, the United States just doesn't produce enough jobs that pay a decent wage. And so um, that's a structural problem. That doesn't have anything to do with people not working hard. There just aren't enough jobs that pay a decent wage that provide decent benefits. Or the political sort of variation of this is that we don't provide the kinds of social supports and programs that, um, that people need to avoid falling into poverty as compared to some uh, many other countries that provide a pretty robust social safety net. So these kind of explanations focus on the idea that there's something uh, problematic with the structure of society that results in um, the United States having such high rates of poverty. And there are also, as you draw attention to some some explanations, we might take these all the way back to sort of the way that Marx thought about labor markets and the function of them. Functionalist approaches that argue that instead of poverty being a failure of the system, that it actually serves particular kinds of functions. Can you talk a little bit about those kinds of explanations for why we have poverty? Yeah. And in fact, I was just, as you were saying that, I was just thinking that that's one that, that, uh, that, that I just left out. And, and that's a, that's a, a really um, interesting and important argument is the, this idea of kind of functionalism. So the argument is that, um, and it really, it really goes back a number of years to a sociologist by the name of Herbert Gans. And in this article, he posed the question of, you know, why does poverty exist? And his answer was, Perhaps it exists because it serves functions for society as a whole and for particularly people at the top of the of the social structure. Well, how, how might that work? So um, one one sort of argument would be, well, if you've got poverty, you've got folks in poverty. Uh, they really don't have any alternatives but to take these dead-end jobs that nobody really wants, but they don't have any alternatives. And so um, that keeps the cost of our products down, but on the backs of those folks who are working those kinds of jobs. Or um, or you might say that, um, you know, but poverty, for example, for you and I, um, you know, we, uh, we do a lot of work on issues of poverty and inequality. We're benefiting from that. It gives that. us jobs. Yeah, it gives us jobs. <laughs> and I mean, the social work students we're, we're educating and training. Exactly. And, and we write books on this and, and we're, tra- you know, and so the, the argument is that, well, may, maybe, um, you know, maybe there's uh, an advantage to, um, to this. Now, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of, a lot of times people have trouble with this, but, um, but I think um, that, you know, it is a really interesting argument. The, the, other argue, the other kind of functional argument that's, I think, also really interesting is applied to social welfare. And this was the argument by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward in the late 60s in a book called Regulating the Poor. And what they said is that, you know, the, the real function of the social welfare state is not necessarily to help people. It's really to placate people so that they don't get so upset that they riot in the streets. And so it's like, you know, giving folks enough so that they don't get really upset, but not giving them enough to have a decent life. And so their argument was that the social safety net really serves a function for the rest of society, um, which, again, is is really kind of um, turning the the whole argument on its head. So I think it's a really interesting argument. However, I would also point out 
on, and I do in the book, that there certainly are many, many negative functions of poverty. And I think in my view that those negative functions clearly outweigh the positive ones. Yeah. And with, as with as with all sort of, of functionalist accounts, it can become a tricky kind of matter to sort of trace out causations and demonstrate intent, right? That's, that's um, exactly right. It, it, it sort of becomes, it verges on the idea of conspiracy theory. You know, it's like, oh, well, people are benefiting from this, but you know, like, okay, let's see the evidence. It, 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 in many ways, it makes intuitive sense. But the problem is just what you said, that there, there might not be, um, it's difficult to point to substantial evidence to show, oh, you know, there's a deliberate pattern here that people are setting this up so that they can benefit from this. Right. Um, so let's turn our attention to to the bulk of your book and what you describe as the structural vulnerability approach. Talk to us about how you think we should be thinking about the causes of poverty. Yeah. So this is uh, this is the, the the main part of the book, um, and and it's a uh, it's a perspective that I've that I've had actually for the last you know twenty twenty five years, and kind of have been writing bits and pieces about this. But I thought it was time to kind of put it together um, in, in terms of one book. So there, there are kind of three components to this idea. Um, the first is that um, if you look at research and you look at evidence, we know that um, human capital characteristics are really important in terms of people doing well or not doing well in the, in the, uh, in the economy. So what do I mean by human capital? It's those kind of things that, you know, skills, training, education, um, experience, you know, all those kinds of things that, that are sort of in our, our, our basket uh, of goods that allow us to compete in the labor market. So people that have more education, people that have more skills, uh, more experience, they're going to do better in the labor market. They're going to earn more income. Folks that don't have those characteristics are going to um, do worse in the labor market. And this is, this is not really controversial at all. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming in terms of this. Yeah. But then I get to the second part of the of the theory, which says, okay, uh, given that, why do some people have more human capital and others have much less? And there I get into the whole idea of cumulative inequality and cumulative advantage and disadvantage. We know in the United States that children are starting out at very different spots uh, in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of resources. And what happens? What happens is, if you're at the top of the income structure, you have all kinds of resources, and those are going to accumulate over time, and you're going to do much better. You're going to have more education. You're going to have more skills. Folks at the bottom are not going to have that, and so there's this cumulative effect that goes on across people's lives that sort of accentuate the differences in terms of where people are starting, and and I think that that's a big reason for why we see you know differences in terms of human capital um, characteristics. But then I get to the final kind of component, which I think is is really interesting, and what I say is that. There are two ways to think about poverty in the United States. One is who loses out at the game, and two, why does the game produce losers in the first place? And here I use the analogy of musical chairs to illustrate this. So I say, you know, imagine a game of musical chairs here. 
where we have um, eight chairs and 10 people playing. Well, the music stops. Who's going to win and lose at the game? Well, you know, it'll be somebody, a couple of people that weren't in a good position when the music stopped. Maybe they weren't as quick or as agile and so on. And we can point to those reasons and say, that's why those two, two people lost the game. But if we step back and we say, wait a minute, the way that the structure of the game is set up is that two people are going to lose regardless of what their characteristics are. So it doesn't matter if everybody doubled their speed, there's still going to be two people losing out. And that's the analogy I use with poverty in the United States. What I say is that, yes, human capital characteristics explain who loses out at the game. But the fact that the game produces losers has to do with the structural failings that we were talking about earlier. There simply aren't enough jobs that pay a decent wage that provide enough benefits. It's estimated that in the United States, about 40% of all jobs today are considered low paying jobs or less than around $18 an hour. Many of those jobs don't have benefits. So that's a structural failure. The other structural failure is that in the United States, we don't provide the kind of social safety net and social programs that will protect people as compared to, say, the European Union or Canada or other countries. And so when things happen to people, um, there's not a lot to protect them. When they lose a job, you know, when, when they get sick, these kinds of things, there's not a lot to protect them from falling into poverty. And again, that has nothing to do with individual characteristics. It has to do with a failure at the structural level. So I think this analogy of musical chairs is very powerful because it explains both of these phenomena. It explains who loses out at the game, and it explains why the game produces losers in the first place. In, in in a funny mind way, it, it it calls to my mind hearing you talk about this. The what what uh, philosophers refer to as the trolley problem, which some people may familiar with. Right, the idea is that you've got two separate tracks, one with two people tied to the track, the other one with four people tied to the track. The train is going along, but you can pull a switch and move it from the track with four people to the track with two people. And this philosophical question is: Are you morally culpable for in Inflicting harm if you're intervening there, and of course, the the I've always thought the sensible answer to that question is like, wait, why are there people on the track? Right. What have exactly. we done? Why have we put people right. on the track? And I think at some level, you're suggesting we've built tracks and put people on them. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's exactly right. That's a good analogy. Yeah, we put people on these tracks, and so. Um, yeah, we might choose between two and four, but somebody's going to get run over, right? And 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 uh, and it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter their characteristics. So so again, going back to this analogy, so much of the um, focus on alleviating poverty is focused on upgrading people's individual skills and characteristics. So things like you know, getting more skills, getting more education. And what I say is that that's a great individual strategy. There's no question that if you get more skills, more experience, more education, you're, you individually will do better in the labor market. However, as a macro strategy, it's not going to make a very much of a difference at all because all you're doing is upgrading the skills of everybody and there's still going to be people that are going to lose out. So what we need to do, and this is sort of transitioning into the uh, the, 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 the last third of the book, um, what we need to do in terms of policy is to think about, okay, how can we make a game in which 
fewer people um, are going to lose out, in which there are, are more chairs in the game so that you don't have the situation where people are just going to, you know, are just uh, not going to be able to make it. So, um, so I think, you know, what I tried to do is use this framework, not only to think about um, why does poverty exist, but also to think about what can we do to address poverty given this idea and um, I also talk about in a chapter how uh, re, uh, how addressing um, the issues in this model and in this framework actually strengthens many of the f- kind of fundamental ideas and values in the United States. Um, and I think that that's, an, you know, that's really important because whenever you talk about policy, um, values always underlie policies. And so I, I sort of have this chapter called Building the Foundation that looks at those values and then talks about the kind of strategies we should think about in terms of reducing poverty. So that's perfect. Why don't we take each of those in turn? Walk us through what you think we should identify as solutions, and maybe we can conclude with with you helping people understand why it is we think they should care. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that, that would be great. Um, So solutions, again, let's think of solutions on a structural level. Um, I think the major structural problem in the United States, we have, we have many, but I think many, and I, I think the most important in terms of thinking about these questions is the fact that we just do not have enough livable wage jobs and jobs that provide benefits um, for everybody who needs them. As I said earlier, it's estimated about 40% of all jobs are low paying jobs. The United States over the last 40 or 50 years has done a pretty good job in creating jobs. But the problem is that more and more of the jobs that, that we're creating are low paying jobs or part-time jobs or jobs that don't have benefits. And you can be working you know, at, at two of these jobs and you're still struggling to try to get by. Yep. So I think that that's that to me would probably be the most important uh, reason, the most important factor to really address the issue of poverty is to, you know, what we could think, we can think about that in several different ways. We can think about getting the minimum wage up to a livable wage um, and then indexing it to inflation so it keeps up with the cost of living each year. We can think about tax policies like the earned income tax credit. Um, and we can think about a, a somewhat more radical policies like um, a universal basic income that's sort of in, been in the conversation over the last four or five years um, as another way of providing those kinds of, um, those kinds of resources that people need. And then I would say the other, you know, the other big thing would be um, of providing the kinds of benefits and resources that most other countries provide. And, and, and clearly, the most obvious one would be healthcare. Yep. We do not, you know, we are one of the very few countries in the world that do not provide universal healthcare coverage. Um, you know, our view is kind of you're on your own, you do it on your own, and this kind of thing. Well, um, that's that's just not smart policy. Um, and so I think the idea of having universal healthcare coverage would go a long way to addressing um, the issues of folks in poverty. We could also think about other kinds of things like childcare policy, you know, and and making that much more universal and good quality. Um, we should also think about the, as I mentioned at the very beginning, the wide discrepancies in education that students are getting. Um, you know, you here in St. Louis, I mean, you can go ten minutes one way, ten minutes another way, and you can find real differences in the quality of education. 
And that's because our schools are generally funded by um, the, the local property tax. And so if you're in a wealthy community, you have a lot of resources. If you're in a poor community, you don't. And the result is that education really differs a lot. And this yeah. is, you know, we often and think- that's, sorry, oh, that's that cumulative yeah. advantage that you were talking about earlier, right? The accident of your birth is going to set you on a particular path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and we, again, are very much of an outlier in terms of how we fund education. So most countries fund their education primarily through the federal level. So everybody kind of gets about the same amount of resources here. We fund it largely through the local, as I said, the local kind of property tax. And that's the reason why there's such wide differences in quality. And so this would be another kind of structural change that I think would be really important in terms of, uh, of addressing these, these inequalities. So how do we do it? Just as a practical political matter, I mean, a living, I mean, we've, you, you well know the fights that we've had over, over $15 minimum wage. That is no longer anywhere near what we might identify as a living wage. We're probably now talking, what, $25, $30 an hour in order to do that. Universal health care, we have been, right, Truman, right, was the first president to try to do something, right? And we've had failed effort after failed effort after fail effort. What, how do you think about the politics of this? Yeah. Although, you know, I would say that, I mean, the, you know, with President Obama and the Affordable Care Act, I mean, that was yep. definitely a step. 20 in- plus million people got access to health care. Yeah, that. yeah. So that was definitely yep. a step in the right direction. Yep. But you're also right that, you know, we, we, we still don't have universal health care. And um, so, uh, you know, I think it, 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 this is really kind of the key question. Like in my classes, you know, on, on poverty and that I teach, uh, we often get to this question. And, and the question is, I think we, we have a pretty good idea of what could address poverty and what could reduce poverty. I think it's fairly clear. Yep. The problem is the political will. Do we have the political will to do some of these things? And, and as you said, we're, this is running up against this sort of strong, rugged individualism. You do it on your own. You don't depend on any government or anything like that. Um, and the result of, of that mindset is that the United States has the highest rates of poverty in the Western world. We have the highest rates by far of inequality uh, among the, the sort of high economy countries. So it ha- that hasn't been working. So, I, you know, we need a change in the mindset. And what we need to change, and I've talked about this in, in the earlier book and in, in, a, in a book um, a number of years ago, we have to change the way that we think about poverty as rather than an issue of them, it's an issue of us. And I would make the argument, and I do in this, in this book, that actually it's to our, our economic self-interest to reduce poverty. And I'll just give one, one quick example of that. I did a, um, an analysis looking at what is the cost of childhood poverty in the United States. And we were very conservative in terms of how we measured this, but it came out to about slightly over $1 trillion a year. This was in tw- for 2015. That was 28% of the entire federal budget. And so it's, it's not a question of paying or not paying. It's a question of how we want to pay. And what we're doing is we're paying on the back end of the problem of poverty by having more health problems, less productive workers, more criminal justice kinds of things. And that's always a much more expensive route to take. 
than fighting a problem on the front end. And so I would say not only is addressing poverty a social justice issue, which it certainly is, but it's also very much an economic self-interest issue. By addressing poverty, we will all benefit. We will have a more productive society. We will be investing in our most important resource, which, which is our human resource and our children. And that will be that down the road that will be will, will, we will re, be repaid many times over. So in that little study I was mentioning about childhood poverty, our estimate was that for every dollar you spend today reducing childhood poverty, you save between seven and eleven dollars down the road. Now, that's a really big bang for the buck. And that's a really smart economic policy. So let's let's conclude here. So if folks are not persuaded by that 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 sort of macro argument about about collective benefits and cost saving for us all, let's talk a little bit about selfish benefit. Uh, a lot of the work that you have done with Thomas Herschel and others has looked at using different measures than that official Census Bureau measure you talked about earlier. But you looked at the likelihood of each of us across the population experiencing poverty over the course of our lives. Can you talk a little bit about what that research has shown? Yeah, yeah I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and um, yeah, so, so rather than think about the risk of poverty in any given year, uh, what Tom and I have been doing is looking over the course of 30, 40 years and saying, okay, over this period of time, what's the likelihood that somebody might experience poverty? And so it turns out, that in the United States, um, between the ages of 20 and 75, uh, roughly 60% of Americans will experience one year below the official poverty line, which is very conservative, and 75% will experience either poverty or near poverty. And so again, this is not an issue of them. This is an issue of us. And as you said, from a self-interest point of view, knowing that three quarters of Americans will experience poverty or near poverty um, wouldn't you want to have some things in place to protect you from that? It's the, so, it's the same idea why we have home insurance or car insurance, because we don't expect an accident tomorrow, but we, it could very well happen at some point. And, and that's the reality in America. So this is a very much thinking about your own individual self-interest. It's to your self-interest to have some strong policies in place to protect you from the ravages of poverty. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Mark Robert Rank about his new book, The Poverty Paradox, Understanding Economic Hardship Amid American Prosperity from Oxford University Press. Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to talking to you about the next book. Absolutely, Stephen. This was really a delight. Thanks so much.